please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we are, well, a few weeks ago, uh, we started a new series in Colossians. Uh, we had a week where we did an overview of the book. Uh, then we spent one Sunday going through the opening verses, uh, the opening sort of thanksgiving part of Paul's prayer. Uh, and now we're back this Sunday. We're going to be looking at Colossians 1, verses 9 to 12 together. And the title for this morning's message is Priorities in Prayer. Priorities in Prayer. So let me read verses 9 to 12. And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you want to discover a person's real priorities, someone once wrote, if you want to discover a person's real priorities, there are two key questions to ask. What do you spend most money on? And what do you most often pray for? Well, we're not going to be talking about money this morning, but we are going to be talking about our priorities in prayer. And in particular, we're going to be learning from the Apostle Paul's own priorities in the prayer that he prays for the Colossians. Now, if you're anything like me, prayer does not always come easy. Perhaps it rarely comes easy. It, first of all, takes great discipline, doesn't it, to actually set aside time to pray but secondly, once we do come to pray, we can find ourselves lost and our minds wandering because we're not always confident we know what to pray for. We wonder, uh, should my praying be just like I'm running through the requests on my Christmas list or should it be somehow richer and deeper? What kind of things should I pray for? What does it mean to pray in line with God's will? What even is God's will for me and the people that I'm praying for? What should I most desire and therefore ask that God would do in my own life and in the lives of other believers? Prayer can seem like a daunting and difficult task. Yet perhaps in contrast to most of us, Paul prayed eagerly and continually and for all manner of people. Even for these believers in Colossae, who he had only heard about through others. He'd never met them for himself. But it seems that even without knowing the finer details of their lives and their day-to-day -day practical needs, he didn't know whether someone's uh, roof was leaking or whether someone's mother was sick or whether someone's horse and cart had broken down, he still seemed to know what they needed most. He, all he'd heard was through his friend and co-worker Epaphras of God's mighty saving work in their lives. He, he had heard of the way the truth of the gospel had been received by them and it had saved them and it had borne the fruit of faith and love and hope in their lives as we saw last time in this letter. And that was enough for Paul to know exactly what was most vital to be praying for these believers. 
And so after beginning with giving thanks for the fruit that the gospel had produced in their lives, he writes, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We have not ceased to pray for you. It's quite an amazing statement, isn't it? And perhaps the most important question that comes to our mind in reading it is, what was it then that Paul was unceasingly praying for? What priorities fueled and energized his prayers and made him so passionate and so confident to pray? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess because Paul goes on to describe in rich detail exactly what he had been unceasingly praying for the Colossians. And in so doing, he sets out a model for us as to what ought to be uppermost in our prayers for one another as well. And one thing I'll say up front, and maybe you've already caught a a, a taste of this as we've read the passage. One thing I'll say is that what he prays for them is incredibly inspiring. And it's my hope and prayer this morning that as we come away from looking at this passage together, uh, that it would be not just a gentle nudge to commit ourselves to praying for each other more, but that we would leave saying, wow, I get to pray all of these incredible things for my own life and the lives of those around me. And I can pray for these things knowing that they are perfectly in line with God's will so that God himself guarantees that he will give us what we ask for. Well, I would be mad not to pray. In fact, I'm excited. I'm hoping this is what you'll say. I'm excited to carve out five minutes of time later today to go and pray through this exact prayer for myself. So the big question this morning is, what are Paul's priorities in prayer? What does he pray for so unceasingly and passionately for the Colossians? The answer, in a nutshell, is that he prays for two things. First, for Christ-centered knowledge. And second, for Christ-honoring lives. Those are our two points for this morning. He's praying for Christ-centered knowledge and then praying for Christ-honoring lives. So first of all, then, we find Paul praying for Christ-centered knowledge. This is in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the heart of Paul's prayer. Everything that follows flows out from this. This is his number one prayer priority, that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But what does that mean? Mention God's will, and our minds quickly jump to questions of what job does God want me to take? Who does God want me to marry? Which church should I join? Where might God be leading me to serve in the various Christmas volunteer opportunities that we've heard about this morning? Now, of course, it's right and it's, and it's good and it's important to lean on God in prayer for his direction in, in all of our decisions, big and small. But what Paul is talking about here is something far more weighty and important than even those kinds of decisions. Because here, the knowledge of his will is the knowledge of what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. So here, Paul's prayer is not primarily concerned with God's private plan for individual Christians. Paul is talking here about God's saving will. 
as he accomplishes his great cosmic plan of salvation in Christ, what he describes in chapter 2, verse 2, as the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul is praying that they would have not just a beginner's knowledge of the gospel of Jesus, not just enough to get them over the start line of becoming Christians, but no more, nor is he praying that they would now be given a, a deeper knowledge of God's will that's somehow separate from and different to what's already revealed in the gospel and centered on Christ. No, what he's praying for them here in verse 9 is that God would take them deeper into the knowledge of his will for all things in Christ. He's already reminded them, uh, as we heard a couple of weeks ago in verses 3 to 8, that God is at work. God is blessing the whole world through the word of the truth, the gospel. Now he prays that they, the Colossians, would know this glorious Christ-centered reality even more fully for themselves. He wants them to have the fullest possible knowledge of it. He wants them to be confident and certain of it, to have a sure grasp of Christ's person and work and all that it means for the world and for their lives. And then he tells them something more about the nature of this amazing knowledge, that it would be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, I think it could be easy here, or at least possible here, to think that what Paul is praying for is that they'd all go out and get theology degrees and become academic experts on the truths of the gospel. But the reality is there are many academics out there in the world who may have a head knowledge of the Bible that far exceeds anything we could ever hope to attain. But it never once produces a flicker of response in their hearts. It completely fails to produce any gospel fruit in their lives. Paul isn't praying for mere head knowledge here. He's not just praying that they have more Bible data to be downloaded into their minds. He wants them to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. In the wisdom and understanding that's revealed by the Holy Spirit. In a way that transforms both their heads and their hearts their beliefs and their affections and their very lives. He wants them, he wants us, to be captivated and delighted by the will of God in Christ. So head knowledge is not enough. And yet what Paul is praying for here does vitally include our minds and what we know. As one writer puts it, God puts no premium on ignorance. Spiritual knowledge is foundational to a sound, fruitful Christian life. So we need knowledge. We need spiritual knowledge. And spiritual knowledge comes through the work of the Holy Spirit as he reveals Christ to us, as he brings us to a saving knowledge of Jesus, and then as he leads us year after year after year deeper into the riches of Christ. But even the Holy Spirit, um, as powerful as he is, and I mean, he could do this, but he doesn't choose to work in this way. He doesn't work in a vacuum. He, even the Holy Spirit chooses to use means. He gives us this spiritual knowledge through the scriptures, the Bible, which he has inspired. So the fundamental way, the main way, the key way that the Spirit will fulfill the answer to Paul's prayer here 
is by helping the Colossians to go deeper into a, uh, a knowledge and understanding of the word of truth, the gospel. The Holy Spirit inspires us to study the Bible and he rewards our heartfelt labours as we do so. It's like when we become a Christian, our lives come... Sorry, bear with me. I jumped ahead. There is no tension, is what I wanted to say, between studying the Bible and being taught by the Spirit. And this has been the mistake of some Christians over the years and some churches who feel the need to, to separate the, the Word and the Spirit. But in the Bible are the very words of the Holy Spirit. He speaks on every page, which, of course, is why Bible study and prayer are always to be closely woven together. Because we pray first for the Spirit's help to help us understand what we read. And then we pray for his power to believe and trust and do what God's word says. So in the light of this first key part of Paul's prayer this morning, let's each of us be asking ourselves, am I growing in my knowledge of Christ and of the, and of the gospel? Is my knowledge of him and of God's eternal saving will in him, is it continuing to deepen? Am I making an effort to lean into the very means the Holy Spirit has provided? Searching the scriptures for all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. Am I reading it regularly? Discussing it with others? Concentrating even in the freezing cold as it's opened and preached on a Sunday? Or am I resisting what the Spirit wants to do in my life? Am I stagnating in my spiritual life and, and, maybe, and even holding back my spiritual growth by not applying myself to grow in my knowledge of God's will revealed in his word? And let's also ask ourselves, what's at the top of our prayer list for other believers? There is nothing wrong at all with praying for health and homes, for work and worries. Those are good things for us to pray for for each other. They are loving and God-honoring prayers to pray. But is our number one prayer and desire for each other the same as Paul's? Is it that our brothers and sisters would be increasingly filled with a knowledge of God's will in Christ, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Is it that they would grow in their love for God's word? That they'd be like the blessed man in Psalm 1. Remember him whose delight was in the law of the Lord? And he meditated on, that, on God's word day and night. And so he was like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit in season. Do we pray for one another that our minds and hearts would be captivated by the knowledge of Christ and all of God's cosmic saving purposes in him? There is perhaps no more important prayer that we can pray for one another or request for one another than this one of Paul's in verse 9. All other health and growth and vitality and joy in the Christian life flows outward from this deep and full spirit-given knowledge of Christ. It all flows out from this prayer in verse 9. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to show then in verses 10 to 12, as he moves on from praying for Christ-centered knowledge for the Colossians to praying for Christ-honoring lives. That's our second 
have two headings this morning. Praying for Christ-honouring lives, verses 10 to 12. Now, I've already said that to be filled with a knowledge of God's will in Christ is to know it deeply and confidently and to have our minds be captivated by it. But one more thing that that word filled includes is the idea of coming under something's control and influence. So like when we say uh, someone is full of fear or jealousy or joy or worry, we, we usually mean that those things have taken control of them. And they've, they're shaping not just their thoughts but also their actions. Well, likewise, when we're full of God's saving knowledge in Christ, his will in Christ, that knowledge should inevitably bring us under its controlling influence. It should take control of us. It's like our lives come into orbit around a new star. It's like we get shifted into a whole new solar system with Christ at its center in all of his manifest beauty and glory and saving power. And that's what the rest of this morning's passage is about because what Paul wants now to begin to explain, beginning in verse 10, is that he's praying for this fullness of Christ-centered knowledge, not as an end in itself, but in order that they might walk in a particular way. Now, he's not, of course, talking about their physical gait and the way that they walk, okay? So we're not going to be watching you. Hopefully you're not watching me on the way out as to how we walk out. He's not about to put them on the treadmill to see what kind of walking shoes or running shoes they need. By walk, he's talking about their conduct in life, how they now live and behave. Because Christian knowledge and Christian behavior go inseparably together. If we could compare it to being at university, the Christian life is very much a vocational course. It's not knowledge simply for the sake of knowledge. And I'm not going to name any particular courses in case someone's doing one of those courses that seem a little bit like they're just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But the Christian life is is knowledge that is so transformative and heart-captivating that it inevitably propels us into action. So the question is, what kind of action, what kind of life should, should come from being filled with this Christ-centered knowledge of God's will? Well, fundamentally, says Paul in verse 10, it should result in us living a life, living in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, there are two ways, two very different ways to read those words worthy and pleasing. And however much we know the gospel, we all have a tendency to fall back into reading them the wrong way. So that rather than feeling encouraged and inspired and spurred on by these two words, worthy and pleasing, these two words can leave us feeling guilty and condemned. So let's be clear. Paul is not here praying that the Colossians would live in a way that is good enough to make them worthy before God. He's not praying that their lives would be good enough to earn God's pleasure. That is pretty much what every man-made religion teaches, but it's not at all what the good news of the Bible teaches. What Paul is praying here is that their knowledge of God's will in Christ would enable them to live out the reality of what God has already done for them in Christ. 
Just look down to verses 12 and actually 3 to 14 for a reminder of what that is. Look at what God has already done for them and us in Christ. God has already qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, verse 12. God has already delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 13, in whom we already have complete redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, verse 14. And as Paul reminded them at the start of this letter, they are already saints in Christ. They've already been set apart as completely holy, not because of anything they've done, but because of everything Christ has done for them, to which they've simply responded by putting their trust in him. So in Christ, they and we this morning, if we're Christians, if we have put our hope in Jesus, we have been saved, delivered, redeemed and forgiven through the gospel of God's grace. So what Paul is praying for now here in verse 10 is that their minds and hearts will be so filled with what God has done for them in Christ that they would walk out their salvation in a manner that is worthy of it. He's praying that they would conduct themselves in a manner that is fitting and appropriate for what God has already done for them. It's a prayer that they would be in practice what they have already become in Christ. It's a prayer that the knowledge of God's mercy, this beautiful, wonderful mercy to them in Christ, would fuel a desire in their hearts to please the Lord in every way. Then, as he continues to pray, Paul sketches out four key characteristics of what that will look like in practice. The first characteristic is, he says, is that of bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work. Again, Christians are saved by grace, through faith and not by works, but once we're saved, says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works don't save us, but they are the fruit that naturally follows our having been saved and joined to Jesus. Uh, right now, if you were to look in our dining room window, um, you would see on our dining room table a, a dead branch sat in a vase. Strange, I know. And, and even stranger, we've hung paper leaves on its various sticky out bits. And you can come and ask us later on why on earth we've done this. Uh, it, looks, it looks quite nice, surprisingly. But no one would be fooled into thinking that this branch was anything but dead right now. We've hung paper leaves on it because we know it just won't produce any more leaves of its own, not while it's dead. But were we to somehow graft that dead branch back into a healthy, life-giving tree, then that would transform our expectations entirely. We would, over time, expect real leaves to appear on that branch as new life flows into it from that living tree. Now, the Colossians were once dead in their sins, but they have now been made alive in Christ. They've been grafted into Christ, the life-giving tree. And so now as they abide in Christ and as they're filled with this knowledge of God's will in Christ and as his resurrection life flows into their branches, Paul knows and Paul prays that it would inevitably produce the fruit of good works in their lives. 
fruit that is pleasing to the Lord. So that's the first thing he prays for. Secondly, the second characteristic of a life that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord that he prays for is that they would be increasing in knowledge. Verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now this one might seem uh, familiar and and therefore surprising to us because surely this is what Paul started off praying for in verse 9. Why is he praying for knowledge again so soon? It's it's just like a stuck record this morning, Paul. Why, Why pray for knowledge again? Well, the most obvious reason is because he's making a very important point about how we grow as Christians. We've already seen how knowledge of God and his will will lead to uh, a changed life, to obedience. But what we sometimes forget is that obedience to God, in turn, actually leads to more knowledge of God. So the more we know Jesus, the more we want to serve him. And the more we serve him, the more deeply we'll come to know him, because there's this moral component built into our knowing and growing in God. It's like um, knowing and doing spiral beautifully up together with one another, like a Two dancers almost rising up from the ice as they clasp each other's hands and they spin around together, put on an amazing show. And so it's worth considering for ourselves that if we find ourselves stagnating or stunted in our knowledge of God and what his will is for us, if we, if we just no longer feel that we're increasing in our knowledge of him, it might not be simply because whether or not we're reading the Bible enough, It might be because we're not being doers of what we read there. And so it's certainly worth us praying, as Paul does, that we would be, as it says in the book of James, both hearers and doers of the word, both increasing in the knowledge of God and simultaneously giving ourselves to bearing fruit in good works. Those two things go together. Excuse me. The third characteristic that he prays for, for their lives, is that they would be being strengthened with power. See that in verse 11? Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. This, uh, all of this prayer is, is profound and incredible, but this verse, I think, really takes the biscuit. This really is an incredible thing for Paul to pray. Look at the language here. I am praying, says Paul, that you will be so filled with the knowledge of God's will that the might of the glory of the Lord will empower you. And notice as well that word strengthened. It's in the present tense. John MacArthur writes, God is not like a booster rocket giving believers an initial boost of power and then leaving them to fly on their own. Believers are continually strengthened with all power throughout their Christian lives. That is amazing. But what does this mighty spiritual power enable us to do? Is it for the performing of many miracles? Is it for defeating all opponents? Is it for leaping tall buildings in a single bound? No. Not for that. Verse 11, it is for... All endurance and patience with joy. All endurance and patience with joy. Endurance is a word that relates to our circumstances. Patience is a word that relates to other people. 
So here is where God intends that this glorious, mighty power will be most prominent in our lives, in helping us endure difficult situations and helping us to be patient with difficult people. And at first glance, that can seem like a little bit of a letdown. That's what we're praying God would supply us with all power for? Endurance and patience? But think again about what welcome relief is stored up for us in these words here. Because aren't all of our lives in so many ways full of difficult circumstances and challenging people? We're probably the most... I'm the most challenging person I know. Maybe you're the most challenging person you know. But, but our lives are filled with difficult situations and, and difficult and challenging people. And we all know firsthand how hard it is to remain steadfast and patient. To endure and persevere with all manner of people and problems. It's something I think, in fact, we've, I'm sure we've all proven to ourselves. We know, we know that these things far exceed what we can do in our own strength. We simply cannot endure and be patient in our own strength. Life is too hard for us. But here is Paul praying and promising that God will supply us with his glorious power and strength. To stand firm in the face of every trial. He will not let our foot be moved. He will not let us be overwhelmed by our troubles. And then notice too, it's not just strength to stand firm that Paul prays for. But strength to stand firm with joy. With joy. This is not mere stoicism that Paul is talking about. It's not just a a gruff-faced Churchillian resolve to keep calm and carry on. This is not stiff upper lip resilience. This is endurance and patience with joy. Think of Paul and Silas in the stocks in prison, praying and singing joyful hymns to God. This is joyful endurance in the face of the mightiest difficulties. Joyful patience in the face of persecution. Joyful perseverance that comes from knowing and trusting God and his all-wise and all-gracious will for us in Christ. And then last but not least, the final characteristic of a Christ-honoring walk that Paul prays for the Colossians, that we can pray for one another, is that they would be continually giving thanks to the Father. He prays that they would overflow with thankfulness to God. Verse 12. Now this theme of thanksgiving surfaces again and again throughout this letter. I don't know why I just had the the image came to my mind of, you know, when you, you go out dolphin watching on a boat and they start to appear and they follow you along. They just keep appearing in and out of the waves. Thankfulness is like that in the letters to the Colossians. But Paul isn't suggesting that thankfulness just originates from nowhere or that it's just something we dredge up from inside us. It isn't just sustained by optimism and happy thoughts. It doesn't even just get delivered direct into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. No, again, the Spirit uses particular means to stoke and stir the fires of thankfulness in our hearts. Thankful hearts are fueled and sustained, we see here, By continually remembering all that God has done for us through Christ. And remembering all of the blessings that have been given to us in Christ. 
Now, we're, we're going to come back another day, another Sunday to explore more of these riches, more of this spiritual firewood for thankfulness that Paul describes in verses 13 and 14. But for now, just look at the, look at the profound reason for thankfulness that he gives us in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, if you're at school or uni at the moment, or maybe you're doing a course somewhere else, you're probably hoping to qualify one day. I guess that's why you're doing it. But you know that the qualification you're hoping for depends on you working really hard to earn it. But the qualification Paul is talking about here isn't one that you and I could ever possibly earn for ourselves, however hard we worked for it. It's a qualification that can only be received as a gift. And it's a gift that God freely gives to all who put their trust in Christ and his sin-atoning death. And in fact, that's why it's called an inheritance. Because no one earns an inheritance You can only receive an inheritance and only when someone dies to pass it on to you. Christ died in order to give us this inheritance. And Paul says it's the inheritance of the saints in light, which just reminds us once again that God has bestowed on us in Christ in in that moment that we first came to believe perfect, spotless fitness for heaven we have been declared holy in Christ justified in God's sight and welcomed forevermore into his family that is a priceless blood-bought treasure for which we will literally never cease giving joyful thanks to the father for and it's a gift an inheritance that is ours today and that we can give thanks to him even now today so here then Here then, let me wrap it all up. Here are Paul's priorities in prayer as he prays for the Colossians. A model for our prayers for one another. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in Christ. Filled with Christ-centered knowledge. And he prays that out of the fullness of that knowledge, they would live a life worthy of Christ. Pleasing him in every way. Especially by bearing fruit in every good work growing in their knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's mighty power and joyfully giving thanks to the Father for the frankly staggering salvation that he has granted them in Christ. These are some of the key priorities that fueled and energized Paul's prayers and made him so passionate and eager to pray without ceasing. And what's perhaps... Most amazing of all, or certainly amazing as well, is that we get to pray these things too. For our own lives and the lives of those around us, we can pray these things even for Christians that we've never met and we've only heard about. And on top of that, we can pray for these things with the same eagerness and boldness as Paul did, knowing that they are perfectly in line with God's will for every single believer. So that God himself promises that he will give us what we ask for as often as we ask for these things. As it says in 1 John 5 verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Like I said at the beginning, if this is what we get to pray for one another, and these things are God's will for our lives, we would be mad not to go and pray and ask for these things and ask for them often. Let's pray. Let's pray this prayer together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the promises contained in Paul's prayer and for the model that it is for our own prayers. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in Christ. Lord, that out of the fullness of that knowledge, you would enable us to live a life worthy of Christ, pleasing him in every way. Father, would you help us especially to bear fruit in every good work. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you. Help us to be strengthened with your mighty power for all endurance and patience with joy. And help us, Lord, to be joyfully giving thanks to you for all the wonderful riches that you have given to us in Christ. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.